Affirmation is incredibly powerful. There have been times where my kids, you know, when they were young, and uh, they had to, you know, memorize some sort of dance or some sort of song, and they got to go out on stage with their song, with their dance. And, you know, I'm sure maybe you guys have been there with us, or maybe we might see some of the kids do this on Christmas Eve. You know, they come out onto the platform, onto the stage, and they are slightly nervous, fidgeting. They don't exactly know where exactly to stand and whatnot. Maybe they just want to give up and run away because of the stage fright and the fear. But then eventually they realize that parents are out there. My loved ones are out there. And then they start looking for us. And eventually our eyes lock. And as parents, as we wave to them and yell, you know, hi, in that precious little moment, they bust a little sweet smile and their fears fly away. There's a little more courage, a little more joy. Maybe you too know what I'm talking about in relation to this affirmation. Maybe you have been there as well when you are taking a knee face to face in the dirt, encouraging your child to conquer fears in the new BMX backyard track. Or maybe you're offering comfort to your students who might be going through such horrible difficulties at home. Or maybe you find yourself as a high schooler offering sympathetic ear to friends going through incredible challenges in school life. Affirmation is powerful. Affirmation is powerful whether we are taking the W's or the wins in life, so to speak, those things worth celebrating. But affirmation is also powerful whether we are taking losses in those difficulties of life. Thank God that as Christians, whether we are taking the wins or the losses, we can lock our eyes on Him. And He wants us to know that His face is always present towards us as our Father. With great affirmation, we have a little more courage, a little bit more joy in the Christian life, and to persevere in this fallen world. Our passage this morning encourages us to look to Jesus in living out our Christian life, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are in verses 8 to 12. And our main point for today is as we're living the Christian life, here's the main point. It's to lean into love, confident in the Lord. Lean into love, confident in the Lord. And I'll repeat that, of course, later on. We continue our series in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And Peter wrote this letter in the early 60s, 80, to Christians who were suffering in the area in which we now know as Turkey. And he writes, encouraging these suffering Christians to persevere in Christ for the Christ they suffer for. And as they endure suffering, he encourages Christians to once again lean into love, confident in the Lord. And that's what we see in our passage today. I'll go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous 
and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As he summarizes and wraps up really what he began in 2.11, this ethical teaching that he's giving to the Christians, as he finishes that up, he starts there with the call to point number one, lean into love. Point number one, lean into love. And I encourage you definitely to take notes. That's always a useful thing. Studies show that we, uh, we are helped to remember the contents. So I encourage you to go ahead and take notes. He says there, lean into love. Look there at verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. You see there what indicates this conclusion that he's wrapping up this ethical section. He says, finally, all of you. There's an underlying urgency for the church to love one another, given the context, given what was going on in terms of the background. Christians, again, were experiencing great suffering in the world then, just as they have for the last couple thousand years of the church. Rising persecution would grow even more under in just a few years at the time of writing underneath Nero, but already it was breaking out, this persecution locally. We know from the letter that some Christian slaves were being beaten by their unjust and wicked master, and there was no legal recourse for them. And so Peter writes addressing their situation. And then like today, there was oftentimes trouble for the spouse who becomes a Christian. They're married to non-Christians, maybe facing social ostracism, threats of divorce, And so he writes into that situation. And we've looked at these things in previous sermons, and Peter addresses uh, those things, encouraging Christians how they are to engage the world living for Christ, who is the only hope and foundation for all of life. He writes encouraging them how to trust in Christ while walking in the very footsteps of Jesus, who of course lived and went directly to the cross. And now Peter wraps it up with all that trouble out there. He encourages us as well to be Christians, be a loving community in here, in the church, as Jesus' people, having received Christ's love ourselves. There's difficulties enough in the world, sins enough even in our own hearts. So you can see why there's great urgency for the church to be the church, to eagerly love one another in the Lord, be gracious and be God's loving people in here. Again, it is a call for us to be this wonderful city on the hill, to be a place of refuge as an embassy of heaven here in the fallen kingdom of man. And as, as, as I'm sure you know, if you are in any relationship at all, you know that this love is actually quite fragile. We have our own sins. We bring our own challenges to these relationships. We bring our own baggage into the church. But in verse 8, we have a helpful reminder of the necessary ingredients that make up Christian brotherly love. It's a helpful reminder. Hey, love one another. Exercise brotherly love. Now, let's take time to remember what's involved in these things as we seek to be God's loving people in here. Look at verse 8. The central catch-all phrase in English is right there, translated as brotherly love. It's a central phrase there in that verse. And this verse is formed as something that is called a chiasm, where you have matching sets of words in the beginning and the end, and then the next set you have the matching set of words, and finally you get brotherly love. So it's all kind of the tip of the spear heading down towards brotherly love. So you look there, he starts off, have unity of mind, with there the matching phrase at the end, a humble mind. 
Really, of course, if we're going to be harmonious, what is required? We got to be humble. We need humility. And then as we kind of get closer towards the tip of the spear, brotherly love, we have sympathy. And then we also have what is required. That is a tender heart. And then finally, we have the central catch-all phrase there, brotherly love that we are to exercise towards one another. What's, what are the necessary ingredients to love as Christ commands us? I'll summarize it this way. First, we have to be united in the gospel for the cause of Christ. United in the gospel for the cause of Christ. You see there in the first set of words there, unity of mind and then have a humble mind. Really, he's calling us to, be, to live in a harmonious way. United in spirit, united in mind. This is the heart of fellowship. And of course, fellowship is not just simply a gathering of people. Christian fellowship is made possible through the blood of Jesus. We are a family gathered together on account of the gospel. We are in the gospel. And so we are for the gospel. And in order for us to have this unity of mind, unity of spirit, to live harmoniously with one another, we, of course, according to Philippians 2, need the humility of Jesus, the mind of Christ. And we are to sacrificially lay down our rights even. Lay down even our demands and even our preferences. All to protect gospel unity here at Evergreen. And so we, in effort to follow Jesus' commands, we strive to not let sin, not let our preferences, not let our culture drive us apart. Unity is fragile. We have different generations here in this room, which I love. We have different cultures. Of course, while from what I understand, the origin of the church was an Asian American church, or really a Japanese American church. Now it's an Asian American church. And then when Rocky came, he said, no, we're going to just reach out to everybody. Of course, we're Asians, so we're going to hang out with Asians. But we, being human beings, are going to hang out with a whole load of people. So we're going to invite anybody to come to know Jesus. And we want our fellowship to actually one day reflect that, reflect our local community around here. And in it all, there are so many things that could divide us. Again, these generational preferences, our cultures, our sins, all of these things can threaten to divide us. And so we need to be eager, eager with humility and with a humble mind to protect this gospel love, this gospel unity as we aim for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the fame of his great name. Second way we are to love others is for Christ's sake, right? He talks about sympathy. He talks about having a a tender heart and being kind-hearted towards one another. What's the purpose there? Anybody can simply have sympathy, right? People can exercise tenderheartedness towards one another. But what makes this unique here, this fellowship, is that this sympathy and tenderheartedness is towards, again, the love of Christ, It's so that other people would know, we all here would know, the safety and security that comes with being in the family of God. This goes far beyond, I need to be nice to people. It goes far beyond loving people generally. Again, anybody can do that. But Christian love has this goal. The goal of seeking people's safety and security in the love of Christ, no matter their situation. Suffering. And the lows or the glorious joys and the highs. At the end of the day, we are to care about each other's well-being in Jesus. And how important it is, therefore, to have both of these things, unity in the gospel for the cause of Christ, as well as 
tender-hearted compassion that we all would know more of the love of Christ and no matter the situation that we're going through. Think if we only just had unity in the gospel. Dry unity. The goal, the cause of Christ without compassion. The church would be a cold machine. And Jesus didn't even want that to begin with, right? That's why he turns up personally to love personally. Or think about it if we just had compassion that encourages people to seek the safety and security in whatever you guys want. You want riches? You think that brings safety and security? Sure, go for it. You want the glory that comes with the accolades and the world's praise? Sure, go for it. Friends, you realize that we actually, if we were to do that, could be leading them away from Jesus? We don't want that. If our only hope is the gospel, which it is, so then we are to see people safe and secure in the love of Jesus Christ and His great love, His steadfast love and mercy for His people. So we have the catchphrase, right? Brotherly love, familial love. And then verse 8, also we see the necessary ingredients united in the gospel for the cause of Jesus and also the grand goal to love people for the sake of Jesus Christ. And as we turn to application, let me ask you guys some questions. What does it look like for you, attendee or evergreen, both can, uh, attendee of evergreen or member of evergreen, both can ask these questions of themselves. What does it look like for you to love and be united in the gospel with us? For the fame of Jesus' name. Does it show in your affections and who you care for? Does it show in your prayers, right? Just review your prayers. Does it show in your prayers in who you pray for and what you pray for? Does it show in who you choose to surround yourself with, not just on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, but also throughout the week in your spare time? Does it show in what group you have thrown your lot in with? Does it show in how you steward your God-given money? in the record of balancing your checkbook? Does it show on Sundays in practical ways before the service as well as after the service? And then does it go on and show itself in the rhythms throughout your week? Do, do the, all those things reflect how you are united in the gospel with us for the fame of Jesus' name? And then you think about the, the second way that we are summarizing these necessary ingredients, right? Think about compassion, sympathetic heart, tenderheartedness. Think about how you speak or seek the people around you, their, their safety and their security in Jesus in every single aspect of their life. You know, Pastor Dan preached a super encouraging sermon about what this looks like, and he referenced that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish those who need it. I'm paraphrasing. Encourage those who need it. Help those who need it. Be patient with everyone. Right? Those are some great ways, awesome ways in which we can exercise compassion to one another. There's a whole lot of other ways. How are you laboring for the safety and security of others in Christ here at Evergreen? With your words. Do you find yourself being sympathetic and tender-hearted, eager, 
poised, with the right posture, ready to go. You find yourself compassionate with others here at the church and ministering Christ to them. These questions are useful. These questions help us clarify for us as to whether we are truly carrying out this command to brotherly love towards the local church. These questions help us go beyond, way beyond merely attending service. Though attending is great, you hear the word preached. That's when the Spirit goes out in power, conforms us more into the image of God. There is only one corporate gathering that we are called to attend here on Sunday mornings, and that's this one. In Scripture, we are commanded to gather. That's great. But these questions here go beyond that. They go beyond attending service. These questions take us beyond, oh, we got to be nice to people on Sunday morning. They take us beyond the so-called fellowship of shooting the breeze about football or the latest news or about fishing, etc., etc. Those, 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 those things are fun and can be very useful. These questions help evaluate ourselves and our relationships and how we conduct ourselves in our relationships to see really whether we are compelled by the love of Jesus who laid down his whole entire life for us, you would figure that those who know such love would be walking in those same footsteps. These commands, of course, presume that we are in relationship with one another. Brotherly love, obviously, and implies family-like relationships. So if you are not a member of this church yet, Are you in family-like relationships with those here in the church? You know, a great way to go in this is to explore church membership and why it is foundational to you fulfilling Jesus' command to exercise brotherly love towards one another. Local church membership is where actually these kinds of commands are to be lived out. And this language of membership, by the way, just comes from, let's say, the Bible's language of being members of one another, fulfilling each of our roles that we have been given so that the body of Christ would be this living, acting organism here on this earth. And everyone would say, whoa, look at that body and its head, who is Jesus? Why is it that you have not thought about church membership? Maybe maybe you've never heard about it. Maybe even you're skeptical. Well, friends, I would invite you to come to church, uh, come to uh, our membership class. You can keep your ears out, your eyes peeled for this class. It's going to be happening sometime in the next few months. Uh, so definitely come and check that out. And there you can explore why, why is it that local church membership is so important to Jesus? And there we hope to hold out the, the very fact that, hey, if we claim to love Jesus, but we don't particularly care about his local church, then you might actually come to realize that, hey, my love for Jesus, I might not know fully of what this means because Jesus died for his people. And we see his people springing up in time and space in local churches all over the world. So again, if you're not a member, just keep your eyes peeled for Membership Matters, which is our membership class here at Evergreens. It'll be a great place for you to start exploring what it means to fulfill the commands of Jesus and to be compelled by the love of Jesus towards the local church. With that reminder to love one another there in verse 8, Peter then encourages us to be loving towards the world. Right? He's calling us to lean into, lean into love. We're still underneath point one. He calls us to be Christ-loving people in here. But he also calls us to be loving towards the world. Look at 2.12. Peter already had this on his mind. 
He says, keep your conduct, you Christians, among the Gentiles, that is those who don't believe. Keep it honorable. Keep it Christ-like. Live for Jesus so that, here's the point, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is, they might be saved. With their salvation in mind, right, their persecutor's salvation in mind, he says there, look at our passage in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is straight out of Jesus' Jesus's words, Jesus' mouth, who said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. That comes from Luke chapter 7. And this is tough. You guys know that this is tough. Because we are saved by grace. We're certainly not perfect. No, now we know what it means to wrestle with sin. Growing in sanctification takes a lifetime. So if somebody hurls insults at us, for some of you guys, you might want to hurl those insults back. If fists are thrown, your temptation might be to hurl some fists back. But Jesus says, no, if you are persecuted, bless which goes far beyond doing nice things to people. To bless, biblically speaking, means to call upon God to pour out His grace on your very persecutors that they would be saved. This is to live according to God's word, God's ways and His will, not the world's. To hurl insults back or to hurl fists back. Those are the world's ways. That is to torture the world in the same way the world tortures Christians at least many throughout church history. But for the Christian who lives that way, I mean, we know what that instinct is like. We do this in our own homes. We do this with our own friends. For you guys to live in this way, we know that there is no shining for Jesus doing those things. There is no shining for Christ like stars in the night when we stoop and adopt the ways of the world. There is no showing that Christ and His way and in His grace and in His love is the only way and He alone is our hope when we go on and say we must take revenge. We must get the last word. We need to exact our own judgment. In fact, when we act in such sinful ways, we are, in fact, a poor testimony of Jesus because in carrying out our own judgment... We deny God what is rightfully His. Right? We see this again. You think about even in your own Christian relationships. If you have that urge to get in the last word and just shut the other person up, proving that they're wrong, you know you deny God what is rightfully His. Judgment is His. He alone is perfectly just and righteous. He alone is judge. And so in relation to engaging with our persecutors, we are to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. And here Peter holds out Jesus as our marvelous example. 22, verse 22 of chapter 2. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Christ received violence from the world, he returns it with grace. He will come to judge without a shadow of a doubt. He came, but when he came first, he came to save. When he received violence from the world, he returned it with grace of which you, Christian, are a recipient. 
having known the forgiveness of God for our own sins and depravity and our own rebellion, for what we rightly deserved, knowing God's forgiveness allows us then to turn towards others and desire that they too would know the same forgiveness that we have as rebels ourselves. We know how hard our own hearts can be. We know how hard our own hearts were. And we know that God alone is the one who can change a sinner's heart, which then simply frees us up to be faithful to God's commands to love and entrust ourselves to Him all the way until the end. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, I want you to pay close attention here, right? What I'm saying is that knowing God's forgiveness is to free the Christian up to go and love others in that same way. We're not saying disregard all of the wrong, the genuine wrongdoings that happen in the world because God doesn't care. No, God cares, which is why he says he's going to return and judge. He cares, and we should too. But that's why exactly we can walk the same very footsteps of Jesus all the way till the end, seeking other people's love that they too would know the love of God, the forgiveness of God, reconciliation with God, peace with God, the joy poured out in our hearts, adoption into his family, that we would know our very own maker, that they would know their very own maker, all the while entrusting judgment to God. And so we love while entrusting ourselves. That is what frees us up to fulfill Jesus' command. Of course, all by God's grace. We don't deserve it. None of this was, was deserved. In the beginning, God created man to be in relationship with him. We rebelled. We sinned against him, the Bible says. We earned for ourselves just judgment, even judgment in hell, the Bible says. So then you might ask, well, why do you Christians talk about this forgiveness and this love stuff? Well, we certainly didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all by God's grace as a gift. That's the very nature of the gift. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be returned, though, in Asian and a lot of other cultures. They insist we must return the gift. Well, doesn't that make it kind of awkward because Jesus is sitting there saying, you don't think you, I don't think you know how it works. A gift is a gift of grace. You don't need to seek to return it because you can't. And so, though we caused the problem, God provides the solution in Jesus. Though we lit the fire, God himself comes to our rescue, and he sends his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh, lives the life we could not. He dies on the cross, bearing the wrath that we ourselves deserve. Three days later, he gets up from the death, from the dead, showing now to everybody and anyone that the death sentence no longer hangs over us. And if you, visiting person, this wonderful good news or gospel is hold, held out to you. And you can know your creator and know the forgiveness of God if you turn from your sins and believe on him. So God promises you will be saved. Again, none of this is deserved. None of that is deserved. So then when the Christian turns to loving our enemies, we say, oh no, you need to deserve my love before I tell you the gospel, before I long for your salvation. No, that doesn't make any sense. We engage the world knowing that we ourselves were hostile towards God. And we're like, yeah, I get that. And I know that the only thing that's going to change your heart is God's grace. So let me show you a little bit of that. All of it is undeserved. God stops us in our tracks, opens our eyes so that we would behold Jesus. You realize that you now, Christian, 
are an emissary of God's grace. Through you, he intends to stop people in their tracks and say, you too can know the love of God and you do that even to the death, just like Jesus. So that when people go around and they say, you are really strange, I'm intrigued, that you directly point them to the Jesus, the God-man who came to save. What a, what a marvelous thing in terms of how exactly it happens that we testify to the grace and the love of God even as we love our enemies. What a calling. What a wonderful calling. You look there, this is what to which we were called. Verse 9. And then you still might be wondering, oh man, I find it so hard to love people whether inside the church because there are genuine wrongs going on. That's why we need to seek forgiveness. And I find it so hard to love other people. Like how exactly am I still going to get this? Help me understand it more. Well, Thank God for the rest of the passages because that's exactly where Peter goes. Point number two, we are to lean into love while trusting in the Lord. We are to lean into love while trusting in the Lord. Let's read again from verse nine. Look there. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he explains. Let me explain, guys. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. In general, he's just saying, look, don't, don't act like the world. Don't return to evil. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here we have motivation for how it is that we can love our enemies. And Peter gives these reasons using the Old Testament, going to the Old Testament book of Psalm the book of Psalms, and we here have here Psalm 34, and Peter knew his Old Testament. Isn't it fascinating? Peter knew his Old Testament, and he's like, how can I encourage these Christians? I'm going to talk about Psalm 34 and write it and include it in my letter to these suffering Christians. The Psalm, as Pastor Dan talked about, is all about God or trusting in God in the midst of suffering because he is present with us. The psalm is about when King David, God's second king over Israel, had to flee persecution from the bad king, King Saul. The story is found in 1 Samuel. Um, he was a bad king and he refused to give up the throne. And really, he just sought the praise of man. He wasn't really seeking to honor God. He just wanted the honor all to go to himself. And the situation is crazy, as Pastor Dan already described. To refresh our memories, David had to flee from his own land that he is king of. He has to flee out of that land. And it's not because he is too dumb or, uh, you know, too dumb or doesn't know how to kill King Saul. He knows how, but he refuses to because he knows that that's not what God would want. So he flees after King Saul tried to kill him multiple times. And it gets even crazier. You know where he goes to hide out? He goes to hide out in the land of his enemies. Because, of course, why would Israel go and pursue King David to kill him? in the land of their own enemies. They might get in more trouble. But then he has to pretend that he has, he has lost his mind so that his enemies would not kill him. Right? If you're crazy, if they thought he's crazy, then they're just going to leave him alone. They brush him off as a crazy person. Right? This guy, King David, he knows something about unjust suffering. And he knows a lot about his God. And we too, as Peter writes this passage, Psalm 34 to us, we are to behold our God in the midst of our own suffering, to see that God is faithful and to know that He will, without a shadow of a doubt, fulfill all of His promises to you, Christian. 
The first promise is a promise of salvation. The first promise is a promise of salvation. It's mentioned there as seeing good days. This is definitely not a guarantee that you're going to live long in this earthly life. Certainly not the case. But here, seeing good days is a reference to finally eternal salvation in Jesus, an eternal life, an eternal inheritance. Verse 9 speaks about this eternal reward as referred to as obtaining a blessing. To obtain means, it could be translated most normally, inherit, to inherit a blessing. In chapter 1, he already referred to salvation as our great inheritance. Now, do not conclude that we somehow are to work for our salvation or that love earns therefore salvation salvation again comes by grace through faith in christ alone peter has already talked about god alone is the one who saves according to his sovereignty he is the one who causes us to be born again and preserves us all the way until the end and our ultimate hope is not in us but in christ's resurrection now in verse 9 it's as if peter's saying look as you are faithful you can know that you are walking toward your inheritance. If you walk the Christian life now, you indeed can look forward to the life with Christ eternally. And that's promise number one, salvation. The second promise is that God, the great I am, is with us and he will deliver us. Listen to this beautiful language that speaks of God being present with you, Christian, in your suffering with these human-like characteristics. Verse 12, look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the... His ears are open to their prayer. It's like God's eyes here, we are to know they are forever watching, always knowing, always listening to our praises and to our laments and to our asking in desperation. His face is always towards us in deliverance. Contrary to those who do wicked deeds, who do evil, who reject Him, His face is towards them in judgment, but it is towards His people in deliverance. How encouraging to know that God's face is always towards us in love, in our difficulties. And that is what makes our fears fly away. You might say, like, I know this. I hear the commands. I know this about them. But nevertheless, my love tires. It wanes and it fades. Here again, we're encouraged to look towards God. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, Paul here is echoing the teachings of Jesus as well. Paul talks about how we are to love church and love our enemies even. And he says there, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, he says there, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then listen to this, which I think is connected to this brotherly love. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We understand our love can flag and tire. But here, Paul encourages us to be fervent in spirit. And this word there, translated English into English, be fervent. It's like he's saying, be set ablaze. It has to do with a burning and a seething. It's like he's saying, be on fire by the Holy Spirit. So when you, Christian, when your zeal in loving God and His church and your very own enemies, when it wanes, the Spirit of Jesus is to strengthen us so that we might live more faithfully for Him. He helps us walk in His ways. So are you tired and discouraged in loving the church or your enemies? 
Who do you look to? Who do you, who do you rely on for strength? Pray to the Spirit of God. Pray to the Spirit of Christ. It is God's Spirit that empowers and establishes us for an entire life of loving Him, loving the church, and loving our enemies. Go to your Savior. Look to Jesus. Christ's zeal as He went to the cross could have tired in His entire earthly life. I mean, just think about what, what, what could that have been like? Is in His entire earthly life, He knew that it would end in death on a cross. And of course, it wasn't just accidental, accidental that he died on the cross. No, he died the death of a criminal. What would lead to his crucifixion was abandonment, was betrayal by his own disciples. But did he give in to despair finally? No. He continued steadily walking the path of obedience to the Father in joy, it says, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and sacrificed so much so that you, Christian, you who had a hard heart, you who deserved judgment, would taste his infinite grace. The Bible says that he set his face like a stone to the cross. He was immovable so that you who were running away from him would taste his infinite grace. Turn over to John 16. Turn over to John 16, 32. You want to know why he didn't give in to despair? John chapter 16, verse 32. Again, he knows that his disciples are going to abandon him in his hour of need. And so naturally, he says there, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Talk about a challenge to zeal in love. The very ones he's come to save are going to abandon him, each to his own home. They're going to run away. Think of how discouraged you would be. Think of how lonely you might feel. The depression, the bitterness. Well, friends, thank God that's not Jesus. He continues in confidence. Why? Look to the passage. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. Why? For the Father is with me. What did he know? He was always in the company of his Father. And so he fulfilled his mission. Christian, you realize that you have the Spirit of Christ in you. Christ who knew difficulty, suffering, abandonment, betrayal, crucifixion, death on a cross. And His Spirit has filled us so that we might know, know more clearly and live with greater perseverance and courage and joy to walk the same path that He did so that others would taste His infinite grace. He is the one who has overcome the world so though we may know suffering, we can know greater faithfulness, being strengthened by God's presence. As he says in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. In Christ we find strength to love, strength to persevere in God who is ever-present. And as we are called to live for His glory and His fame on this stage of the world Yes, we too might be frightened. 
We might not know exactly what we are to do. We might be tempted to simply run away in fear. But God wants us to know that when we see His face, we have courage. Christian, the great I am, Yahweh, the Lord, is with you. His face is towards you, ever knowing, ever watching, ever hearing. And just as He has promised to come to deliver, so He will fulfill it. And in His deliverance, He promises also to judge those who oppose Him. Though His face is decidedly towards you in love, Christian, His face is also decidedly against those who do evil. So with judgment in the hands of God, we, like Jesus, can simply go on loving God's faithfulness compels our perseverance to love and sacrifice like Jesus till the end. Where provides confidence to love is Christ's great love for us. To Him we are to look. And in fighting to love others here in this church and the world around us, we pray that they too would know and taste the same grace in Jesus Christ that we know and have been given. And He will tell us at that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you and give you great praise for being our faithful God. God who is over us and God who is with us. We recognize, Lord, that you are the powerful one, the sovereign one, and the present one. We ask, Lord, that when our love wanes and fades in the difficulties of life, Lord, we pray that you would help us think yet again about Christ's great love for us and how his love never flagged, never tired, despite our sin and rebellion against him. And you, Lord Jesus, were so faithful and so steadfast, so determined that we would know you that you walked to the cross in great joy. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would teach us what it looks like, what it means to live in that same way, with that same love, in that same perseverance, so that others too would taste and know that you are indeed gracious and that you are indeed good. We lift up these things to you. We pray, Lord, that Evergreen would be marked by Christ's love as we seek to love one another inside the church and as we seek to love those outside. In your name we pray. Amen.